Okay, grab a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're walking through uh, Corinthians this fall. Fan or follower, it's uh, one of those things that Jesus calls us to be all in and not just here from the sidelines, but to really follow him in discipleship. In uh, soccer, uh, in soccer uh, yellow cards and red cards are used to discipline players for general misconduct and bad behavior during the game. If a player receives a red card, he's immediately dismissed from the field of play and can't play any further in the match, and the team must play the remainder of the game without him. So Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, has already given a yellow card to the Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 14. He said, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Remember, the Corinthians were fraught with divisions. One says, I follow Paul. One says, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Apollos. And Paul, so for the first four chapters, talks about divisions, about aligning, and how that really destroys the testimony and the witness of the church. And so Paul gives them a yellow card. He, he warns them. And in today's passage of Scripture, he is going to give a red card to a believer. He is out of the game. He's not out of the stadium. He's not out of the kingdom, but he is out of the game. And really what Paul is going to do is talk about how we handle sin, how we handle offenses. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us a, a, a method for following with offenses, and it is this. He says, first, for someone who has offended you, you are the one who has offended you don't go talk to somebody else about the sin they committed against somebody else. It's you, right? You don't get in the middle of somebody else's thing. You go talk to them. And, and hopefully, and the, and the goal is, as a, as a believer, and as, as they see how they have hurt you, they would repent and say, I'm sorry, I, I forgive me, I don't, I don't want to do this again. And Jesus understood and said, well, if they don't do that, then you take a few people with you so that you can witness this, right? There's this, there's this thing on the testimony of two or three witnesses, so it's not just... Uh, you said and they said. It's like we can, get this, we can get this together. So sometimes just some objective outside help will help with that as well. And then Jesus said, if that doesn't work, then there needs to be this public confrontation. And that's really where we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So following the directive of Jesus, it, we, we hope that the Corinthians uh, took this person and said, listen, here's some things that you're doing. There, there's, there's this thing. And perhaps hadn't dealt with it. And so now really what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is, is this confrontation. There's this, there's this public in front of the church. And so Paul is confronting the case of sexual immorality. Now, he says it's been reported to me, so probably from Chloe's household that he, we read about earlier, the word got back to Paul somehow that this situation was, was happening in the church. Now, I just want to lay some context for where we find ourselves in, in Corinth, in, in Corinthians, where when Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. Matthew Ruger, in his book, Sexual Morality in a Crisis World, says this about the cultural background of the time. The New Testament texts dealing with sexuality were written to Christians living in predominantly Roman cities. The message clashed harshly with Roman sexual morality. Romans did not think in terms of orientation, but of dominance. It was socially acceptable for a Roman male to have sex with whoever he wanted, provided he was the aggressor. So in this Roman place of, of uh, armies and conquering, that was the virtue. It didn't matter who, as long as you were the aggressor. This expressed the Roman understanding of virtue and love. So the Romans thought virtue and love was, a, was expressed in sexual aggression. Women were seen as weak physically and mentally and were held to a different standard than men. 
a woman caught in adultery would be charged with the crime and the law allowed the husband to kill her. To be a good Roman citizen, a man needed to participate in it or at least not protest against it. They had to become part of the culture or at least don't make us stink about it. Just let us do what we want to do. They considered exploitation as necessary and good. So this is the culture where the Corinthians find themselves in, this church, in a culture where love has been expressed by aggression. And it was imbalanced in so many ways. And so he goes on to say this. Our early Christian ancestors did not confess biblical chastity in a safe culture that naturally agreed with them. The sexual morality they taught and practiced stood out as unnatural to the Roman world. Listen, in the culture, it seemed normal. But the church said, no, this isn't how it is. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound like we are living in Corinth and in the time of the Corinthians? He goes on, Matthew Ruger says this, Christian sexual ethics that limited intercourse to the marriage of a man and a woman were not merely different from Roman ethics. They were utterly against Roman ideals of virtue and love. And so when the Christians said, listen, we have a word from Jesus that says one man and one woman together for life. The Romans said that is crazy. That is silly. That's not love. That's bigotry. That is some kind of phobia. That is some kind of narrow-mindedness. Do you see we are living again in, in the days of Corinth? I don't know that we maybe ever got out of it. And so what we have to be careful of is how we define love. That's the thing today is love is the answer, but it's always love and truth that go together. And if there's one place that the world is trying to uh, attack the church, it's in the area of sexual morality or immorality. There's talk recently about churches being denied their tax-exempt status if they do not actively promote homosexual marriage and transgenderism. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal? We lose our tax-exempt status. Well, here's what the big deal is. Your donations to your church will not be tax-exempt. You won't be able to write them off on your taxes. We will be forced to become an LLC. We will become a different kind of entity, a different kind of corporation. And when we become a different kind of corporation, because they have stripped the tax-exempt status from the churches, we will be subject to the laws of the land. And so when a couple comes and says, we two women want to get married, and we say, no, we can't do that, guess what? We have to do that because we are now an LLC, and we cannot discriminate because we are a different entity, and they can bring a lawsuit, and everything will be gone. So it is a big deal, folks. It's not about just writing the taxes off. They want to bring lawsuits against churches who are not promoting this. Doesn't that sound like Corinth to you? It absolutely does. And so Paul, that's the setting where the Christians were. And so we can kind of relate. Like we're not there, but we can kind of relate. And so that's where we are. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. 
So when you are assembled, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slander, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, one of the reasons that we are walking through books of the Bible is because we have to walk through passages like this. I would much rather prefer to skip over it because it's a very difficult passage, but it's still the Word of God, and it's still something we need to dig into and that we need to make sense of in our lives because it is, it is inspired just as much as 1 Corinthians 13 that's all about love, right? Love is patient, love is kind. So we, we have to walk through this this morning. And so there are some concerns, first of all, that Paul had in writing this. The, the one issue is it was an ongoing relationship. What does he say? A man is sleeping, right? So there's, there's this ongoing situation. It wasn't something that had been taken care of. It wasn't something that had been done, but this was something in the church that was, that was going on. But not only that, the church was bragging about it. He said that you are proud. He says, what you're boasting is not good. And, and if they, if they took action in this culture, they might be described as prudish or bigoted or narrow minded in the pagan society of Corinth but they were smug. But they were not necessarily smug about the sin. What they were smug about was their tolerance of the sin. They said, look how enlightened we are. Look how open we are. Look how tolerant we are. And then Paul said, no, you're, you're boasting about that. And so that's part of the reason why he wrote this letter. It's because they were boasting. They weren't, they weren't boasting about the situation with this person but they were boasting that they were tolerant. We just, you know, don't have any boundaries. We just like everything and let everything to go. And the libertine church of the, of the, of the church was flaunting its freedom. I have great freedom in Christ. Right? I, can, I can do whatever we want. Partly because of our modern pluralism that everything, is, everything goes and every, every worldview is equal in value. Because of our modern pluralism, we tend to backread onto history and say, well, you know, the early Christian movement was highly inclusive. It wasn't. That was a revisionist view of history. The straightforward documents of the New Testament say the early church was not inclusive of all sexual acts. There was one between a man and a woman in marriage. That was it. In fact, the word for porneia is that word we get uh, for immorality. And the word, everything outside of that boundary falls under this uh, ethic of porneia. And so the church uh, today, we will hear people say, well, you know, the early church included everyone. Yeah, there's a difference between everyone can come, right? But there's an expectation. The third thing was they failed to act. Now, it's clear that this was incest, right? The Old Testament strictly 
forbade under the Jewish law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that Paul still, he still reached back into the Old Testament and he brought the Old Testament sexual ethic to bear on the church. And sometimes we hear, well, you know, that was the old covenant. That still, that doesn't apply to us just because it's in the Old Testament. But listen, the, the ethic still applies. The, the, the ceremonial things and the sacrificial things, those are done away with Jesus. But there's still an ethic, a morality in the Old Testament that's still applied into the New Testament. And so this is what Paul, this is why he's writing. There was this ongoing situation. The church was like, hey, we're cool with it because we are tolerant. We just love everybody. We want everybody to be happy. And they fail to act. But what I want to do is kind of walk through this and say, what are some things that, that I can do as a believer? What are some things that in my personal life, what can I do? And I think Paul gives us some clues in this passage the first thing that we can do is we can grieve over sin. Look at verse number two. He says, you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? There is a suggestion that this, the verse, in, uh, verse two is instructive. In other words, Paul isn't making a request. He's not saying, shouldn't you have gone into mourning? Like that was one of the options. But okay, you chose this other option. That's not at all what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is, no, you should have gone into mourning. But you're not mourning the sin. You're actually celebrating it, and you're not grieving. You are uh, bragging about accepting it in, in, into your fellowship. And so Paul makes the point, and he says, this is a kind of sin that isn't even among the pagans. Now listen, this is an exaggeration. Paul and the Corinthians knew that these kinds of things happened among the pagans. Paul was trying to shock them. Some of the Roman emperors have been charged with practicing this very thing. We got Nero, and he had some mom thing going on, and, some, and Caligula, and something with the sisters. I mean, there was, there was stuff going on. And so Paul's trying to shock them, and he says, Listen, you are not doing this, and you're, you, the pagans are, are not as bad as you are. But they really were. And so he's, he's, he's shocked, he shocked them. And so what happens in our, in our lives is most of us, we selfishly mourn the consequences of the sin, but we don't mourn the fact that it broke God's heart. Man, I got caught. Whew, if I wouldn't have got caught, it would have been okay. And instead, what Paul says is we need to grieve over the, over the sin. Like, that's the thing. It's, it's not what you're doing with it. It's the fact that you did it and it broke God's heart. Because true Christian mourning, it does something about the sin. Like, it doesn't just say, oh, that's awful. But it does something about itself. Mourning is not satisfied simply with regret. And what Paul's saying is, you should have been mourning. And, and the mourning isn't like, oh, man, I feel really bad. No, you should have been mourning, and then you should have done something about it. Remember, he, he got them for the, a failure to act. They were uh, bragging about their sophistication and their, and their broad-mindedness. One author wrote, Perhaps they justified their approach to the circumstances by saying to themselves, When you live in Corinth, you have to adapt somewhat to the culture. Besides, morals change with the times, and we should feel a certain obligation to loosen up ourselves, because less bigoted and become more liberal. 
Paul's like, no, 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 no. You're not, you're not grieving. You're, you're celebrating your, your broad-mindedness, but, but I'm telling you, you need to be grieving. And so he goes and he says that you, you uh, have this. And so what does he do? Now, he does this really hard thing. Did you catch it as we read it? He says, you put this person out of your fellowship. He's been doing this. He says, um, even though I'm not physically present with you, you do that. And so um, because that his flesh may be destroyed, but his, his spirit saved. Now, listen, this is, this, this, this is one of those difficult places in the New Testament. But part of Christian community is to reinforce Christian boundaries for the community. So Paul says in verse 3, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's, what he's doing, he's anchoring his message in the teaching of God. And so this man's sin, but listen, this man's sin did not move him beyond the bounds of forgiveness. And so Paul says one of the purposes was that would bring him to repentance for his transgression. And we need to remember this. Discipline is for restoration, not destruction. And I think sometimes in the church, we just wanted to destroy and not to restore. William Barclay said this, It has been said that our one security against sin lies in our being shocked at it, yet discipline should never be exercised for the satisfaction of the person who exercises it but always for the mending of the person who has sinned and for the sake of the church. Let's be honest, parents. Didn't we discipline our kids because it made us feel good? Did nothing for them, but it sure made us feel good. We didn't want to restore. We didn't want to help. We, it just like made us feel good. That's why we discipline out of anger. That's why we say things we don't mean. Why? Because it's for us. It's about us. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He said, no, discipline is for the person being disciplined. It's not to make you feel better. It's, it's for them. And so he says, here's what you do. You hand the person over to Satan. Now, Paul has said this before in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, um, Hymenaeus and Alexander, I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So what, what he's saying is, this Christian means to be thrust back into the sphere which Satan still exercises his authority, which is what? The world. So you've got the kingdom of God, and you've got the world. And so living in rebellion to Christ's rule, he was, this man was really aligning himself with the world. And so Paul says, for the destruction of his flesh. And so when Paul talks about flesh and spirit, he's not saying, I want the man killed. He's not talking physical flesh. He's talking about that old nature flesh, that carnal flesh, that flesh that we all wrestle with. It's that place. And so Paul's saying, this needs to be remedial. It's restoration, not destruction. You're not to destroy the person, but you hand them over so that the flesh is destroyed, so they can see the error of their ways. It's, a, it's, it's just an acknowledgement of what the person has already done to himself. And it gets the church straightened out on sin as much as it does the person. So he says, hand this person over to Satan. The biblical religion is not a form of dualism. All the movies about Satan, you always see there's always a form of dualism. It doesn't matter who it is. You got a person possessed by Satan, and then you got, it's always a priest, right? They're, and they're dueling. Through the whole movie, you're like, oh, we don't know who's going to win. Is Satan more powerful? Is, right? And so, there's a, and so the, the, the culture and, and, and some thought processes that, that, that this, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light are equal. They are not equal. God is not equal with Satan. Satan's a created creature. And God is omnipotent and omnipresent and all those things. And so we do not believe in a form of dualism. There is no match when it comes to God. Every other kingdom, whether visible or invisible, is subservient to him. 
It is not a match to see who's going to win. God is not in an arm wrestling match with Satan and just like, I don't know, I don't know. No, it's not like that at all. God is sovereign and he's in control. The end of story. There is no dualism of these two kingdoms that are struggling against each other. But what happens is he gives this person over, right, so that he can see more of where he ends up. When someone is handed over to Satan, Satan is not going to assist that person one iota. Satan's not going to say, hey, what are you doing? Let me help you get back over there. No, he's going to take him and grab him and bring him deeper into his immorality. But God alone has the power through his word and his spirit to destroy the flesh. So how did God teach Job to trust in him more fully? Remember the book of Job? What did God do? God handed Satan or handed Job over to Satan. Remember, Satan had to come and ask permission. And what did God do? God handed him over. And at the end of the story, Job understood through this handing over that his life wasn't about his possessions and he could still maintain faith in God when everything was gone. Would Job have known that before? No. God handed him over to Satan. And now Job knows something that he didn't know before. Think about Paul himself. Paul had all these visions and he had been to heavens and he'd done all these things. And Paul himself says what? In order to keep me from becoming boastful, I have a what? A messenger of Satan, a thorn in my flesh. So what happens is, how did Paul understand that it was in his weakness that he had power, that God's grace was sufficient for him? How did Paul come to understand that? It's because, in a way, he was handed over to Satan, right? And so handing this over isn't for him to be killed. It is for some restoration. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to have you. And he wants to sift you like wheat, but I'm going to pray for you so that when you return, right? So there was this, there was this place. And so what it is, handing over to Satan, it's a trial for refining. Most people continue in their life of sins and, and bad habits because there's no consequences or they don't think there is. You think people who are uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol, well, I can stop anytime I want. And the other lie they believe is what? It's not hurting anyone. And until they understand that it is hurting people, they're going to continue to believe that. Well, how do you get them out of that cycle? You, you hand them over to Satan, in a sense. That they see the awfulness of their choices and the awfulness of their consequences and the awfulness of what they are doing. Listen, when did the prodigal son come to his senses? He was in the pig pen. Eating the, eating the food that the pigs had. And then he came to see the awfulness of his situation. He was kind of, what, handed over to Satan at that point. He wasn't in his father's house. He was in the pigsty, wanting to be at home. And he only came to his senses when he was handed over. He was hungry. And he realized this is not where he wants to be. Listen, part of our job is we are not to always rescue people. We need to let them fall. We need to let them fail. We don't always give them the money so that this is always taken care of. We don't always go pick them up. We let them fail. That's the handing over to Satan. It's the consequences that are not good. That's what Paul's saying. Don't don't be rescuing this guy. You hand him over. There's got to be some consequences. And unless he sees some consequences, he's going to keep on doing what he's doing. 
But the goal is what? It's restoration. It's not destruction. It's not about me feeling good because look what I did to you. The point is, I wanted to shock the person and that, so that they're stimulated in their behavior to come back to Jesus. Again, the church is not to destroy the man, but to reclaim the man for Christ. And I know this is difficult as we, like, how does this work? I don't know. But all I know is this. Our motive has to be for the person. It's for their benefits, for their restoration. It's not to make me feel good and not to make me feel like I did something. So Paul goes on. He talks about unleavened bread. He talks about yeast working through the dough. What he says is this. You need to become what you are in Christ. So as we look at people in our lives, in our own lives, who have sinned, who have messed up, our, remember our goal is restoration. It's not destruction. And Paul says this. He kind of goes into this, this uh, uh, side thing a little bit. He says, your boasting is not good in verse 6. He talks about this yeast. It, the, go, the yeast goes through the whole batch of dough. And so in the scripture, yeast was, 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 a, was a metaphor for something small that can spread. Now, sometimes it was good and sometimes it was bad. You have to look at the context. It doesn't always mean that yeast is bad. But what it says is this little thing can start and then it can grow. And so Paul had already challenged their boasting earlier about you're lining yourselves up with teachers and you think you're kings and you're not really kings. And so he, he comes back to this thing about yeast. And so the Jews before the Passover feast would cleanse their home of yeast because that was a, was a sign of sin back then in that time. And so Paul then says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cleanse your temple. I want you to cleanse your house. I want you to get out of your life. What? That, that, that little thing. It looks like a little thing. But guess what? It will grow. Think about sins in your own life. Don't they tend to start out small and then they grow? And it's, it's that first little lie. And then somebody catches you and then you have to tell another lie to cover up that lie. And so I have two. And then I got to tell another lie to come over that lie. And so what happens is this thing starts to grow. And then I can't remember who I told what and who knows. And it's this growing thing, right? That's the yeast in our lives. And so what Paul says is this. You, he, he, he views the Christian life, it's, our Christian life is the Passover feast for our whole life. That's our, that's our life in Christ. Why? Because he says our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That's Jesus. He took care of the sin for us. And so what he's reminding the Corinthians is this. You just need to become what you already are in Christ. He says, you are a new batch. You're an unleavened batch. And in verse 7, he says, as you really are. Most of our Christian life is we need to be reminded and remember who we are in Christ. And then we need to be building our lives to become what we already are. In Jesus, we're an unleavened batch. We're this new thing, right? And so our lives then are to know that and know our identity and then align our actions so that we realize the, who, the, uh, to bring to potential what we really are in Christ. You're a child of God, are you not? Are you? Yes? No? And isn't our lives then living in that identity that I am a child of God? So what does that mean? He's going to provide. I don't have to fear. He's going to take care of me. Ultimately, he's going to take me home. And so all of our lives, so that's, all, that's all Paul's doing is this. Especially with this person who is, is, is committing this immorality, this person was not becoming who he was in Christ. When we come to Christ, we give our lives to Christ, and, and God says, there's no penalty for you. You are forgiven and you're free. And then we go out and we're like, I think I still want to sin. 
And I'm still making some bad choices here. And I'm still doing things wrong, right? That's where we are. And, and Paul says, wait a minute, you, you are in Christ. You are forgiven. You are this unleavened batch. He says, you really are. And the way you get back to that is to get rid of the things that are hindering you from being who you really are in Christ. Just living up to our identity. We live up to what people tell us. If people say that you are stupid, you're going to think you're stupid. If people think you're a loser, you're going to think you're a loser. Now, there are people who say, you know what? I'm, they said that, and I'm going to go the opposite way, but we tend to live up, right? And that's all Paul's saying. You just live up to what you already, what you already are in Christ. Because he is our Passover lamb. And he is the one who sacrificed for us. Because what we can think is, well, I messed up. It's all over. No, 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 no. What Paul says is, you come back. And you are that unleavened batch without the yeast. And so it all hinges on Jesus' sacrifice uh, of the cross. He is our Passover lamb. You don't need to atone for it yourself, that Jesus has already atoned for it. And so Paul's, again, walking through this thing of, 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 of living a life that God has called for us to live. Now, he says in verse 9, it gives us an important thing. The fourth thing we need to do or not do is withdraw from unrepentant believers, not avowed unbelievers. Now, here's what we do in the church. That world is so awful. Let's all get together and talk about how awful they are. And let's pat ourselves on the back for how good we are and how that we're so not like them out there. In fact, I'm not going to go out there at all. Let's just all hang in here together. Because that world is a big, bad, mean place. Paul's like, you got it backwards. You got it backwards. The world is acting like the world. And in our judgments and in our criticisms, and in our critiques, and in our looking down the noses at those who don't know Jesus, we have no right to do that. They're just being who they are. We are supposed to be who we are, which is the unleavened batch of bread. They're just being who they are. Listen, the church gets itself in trouble when we try to dictate morality to a world that doesn't want it. They, they have no reason to accept it. Paul says, you got it backwards. You need to take care of yourselves and God will take care of them. It's not my job to go around life telling everybody how awful and wrong that they are. They're just being who they are. What's going to make the difference? Jesus and their life. So don't be afraid to hang out with the non-believers. Don't be afraid to go places where non-believers are. Don't be afraid to be in those places where non-believers are doing non-believer things. And Paul says, you just make sure of this. You as a believer are not doing non-believer things. That's your job. We like to distract. And we like to throw people's attention off. And uh, we like to say, look over there. And And Paul's like, no, 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 stop you got to look in here. You stop looking over there. You look in here. It's not your job to look over there. You look in here. And among those who say, yes, I'm following Jesus. That's where we look. And that's where we minister. And Paul is not saying, because he says, I wrote you not to uh, associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning what? The people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Everybody in Corinth was an idolater. They all uh, were idolaters. Because why? It's just so very practical. In that case, you would have to leave the world. 
There is no way to live your life as a believer and go from a believing house to a believing workplace on believing transportation and then on your way home from the believing workplace to go to the store with believing things and people and then come back home to a believing house and pick up your mail from the believing postman and then send your package out on the believing UPS truck and then go uh, to the, uh, the uh, football game with believers. All Paul's like, you can't do it. <laughs> You'd have to leave this place. You take care of you is what he's saying. And then he says, I, I will what? I will take care of them. And we've, we've got it, we've had, we have got it backwards. It's impo- it is impossible to live anywhere. And Paul's writing to the Corinth church, and it, it's impossible to live anywhere without associating with what? He says greedy and swindlers and idolaters. But he, what he says is, but the, if the sexually immoral person is a believer, don't even eat. Now what is he, what is he saying? Eating is referring to that social interaction, that, that dining together, eating with hospitality was that thing where when you welcome someone into your home, you were welcoming all that they were. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, don't even eat with such a person. In other words, you don't pretend that everything is just fine and just treat the relationship like you always have. You need to stay close enough, though, for restoration, like you're not destroying the person. But you can't do business as normal. Why? Because if I do business as normal, there's no consequences, and the person hasn't been handed over to Satan. So there's, there's got to be this, this thing in our lives where we have this wisdom. And listen, I don't know how this looks or how this works, but when you're faced with this situation, we've got to figure it out somehow. And he says, you don't just carry on like business as usual with a believer. But you got to stay close enough because after that person comes to their senses, hopefully they'll come to their senses, you need to be the one that's there to help them and to restore them. How does that look? Well, you got to figure it out. We have to figure it out in our own lives through prayer and wisdom and reading God's word. Like, we just, we just have to figure it out. Because I'm, I'm afraid we're doing it wrong. We're rejecting the world, the non-believers. We don't want any association to somehow think we're going to be contaminated. And here's what Paul says. He says, the contamination isn't out there. The contamination is in here. It's in all of us. We are all infected with this thing called sin. Now in Christ, we're forgiven and we're free and we have this clean start. But he says, you need to be careful we need to continue to reach out and, and just like we're evangelizing with this person, but, but these, but these, these uh, social interactions that we've always done, they just can't be the same. Interpersonal relationships always suffer when there's sin. They just do. And to pretend like it didn't happen and to pretend like everything is normal isn't helping you or the person. That's, again, this person is, is a believer. And so Paul says this, that I don't even judge these people. He says, in fact, God's going to judge them. So you let them to the Lord. You take care of you and your household and those who, who claim the name of Jesus. One last thing that I think Paul is reminding us of in this. Refuse to excuse acceptable sins. Paul lists six items. He says in verse 11, sexual immoral, the greedy, the idolater, the slanderer, the drunkard, and the swindler. Paul starts out with sexual immorality in this passage. But if you know anything about Paul, whenever he has a list of sins, he always includes these other sins. And many of them are heart sins, are sins of our hearts. 
it's, it's easy for the modern reader to look and say, you know what, sexual immorality is the worst sin ever. Listen, sexual immorality is not the worst sin ever. Sin is the worst sin ever. And Paul always groups those things together. And what does he say? The greedy, the idolater, the slanderer, the drunkard, and the swindler. We need Paul's reminder that the biblical definition of sin covers all of humanity's sinful behavior. And that, yes, there's, there's, there's consequences and different kinds of consequences. But what he's saying is he, he, he lumps these all together. And so Paul has these vice lists. You see that throughout his, his, his writings. He will list these sins. And what we've done is we have said there are some sins that are worse than other sins. And so we have these acceptable sins. Don't you dare be sexually immoral. We're going to be knocking on your door. But man, you can be a gossip. You can be a workaholic. You can be destroying your family for your love of money. But we'll let you go. In fact, we'll honor you <laughs> and praise you for all those kinds of things. But don't you dare be sexually immoral because we're going to not treat you very well. And if we're not careful, we can start categorizing. And so what Paul does is he starts out talking about the sexually immoral. But all through this, he throws in these other things. And there are, listen, there are no acceptable sins. But we have made some acceptable. The drive for success. Success is my idol. And I live my entire life pursuing success. I can't serve at my church. I don't see my family. And I have a heart attack because of all the stress I'm under. But man, you are awesome because you are driven. (laughs) Isn't that funny how that works? Paul will not let us get away with it. He lumps these all together. And we can't overlook non-sexual sins. I've said this before. We did our, uh, uh, a few weeks ago. If you grew up in the 80s, you grew up in this purity uh, culture, like somehow people who didn't have sex before they got married were pure, and the people who did have sex were somehow impure. And what happened is that created special classes of people, and the people who didn't have sex were like, oh, I'm just a little better than you. Never mind that they were arrogant, that they were lustful, that they did everything up to the line without going over the line. They might have been the most mean-spirited, haughty, arrogant, proud people, but we praise them because you are pure. You know what the Bible tells us? None of us is pure, sexually or otherwise. And we have no right to look down our nose at other people based on their sin because we are sinning and they are sinning and neither one is acceptable. And Paul brings us back to that place. And I think the message of the church and our witness in the world is because we have had at least had the maybe misperception, but not so often we've had the direct perception that we've, we think some are worse than others. And so we, we don't challenge ourselves or we don't challenge other people because those are the, the acceptable sins. Anger is an acceptable sin. Anybody can stand up in a group anywhere and say, you know what, I struggle with anger. People are like, well, bless your heart. We'll be praying for you. Nobody's going to stand up and say, you know what? I struggle with pornography. (gasps) What? You see, anger is the acceptable sin. Pornography is not. See how we do that? Or or I'm struggling with this. We're like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. 
Nobody's ever going to say, I'm I'm struggling with this. See what we do? And what happens is we don't help anyone. We're not helping that person. We're not helping ourselves because there's no restoration and there's no becoming what we really are, which is what? That unleavened batch of bread. As long as we we keep in that. David Pryor points out this. If we were to ask virtually any third world Christian, what is the most common and destructive sin in the Western church? The The answer would be invariably covetousness, greed. We'd like, no, 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 the worst in sexual immorality. Yeah, but it depends where you are. American church, very covetous, greed. Like, we got the stuff. We got the more and the more. And Paul says, no, you can't, you're not getting off the hook. There are no, there are no acceptable sins. So, so in our lives, I grieve over sin, and, and my goal is restoration and not destruction, and I become what I am in Christ. And uh, like, it's not the world that I need to worry about. It's, first of all, me, my house, my community, my faith community, right? And then I, I refuse to accept acceptable sins, just kind of overlook them and just let, let people go off. But ultimately, it always comes back to the gospel, because Paul said, Jesus, our Passover lamb. Listen, there is, there is none of us that, that makes the cut. None of us. And sometimes in categorizing sin and sometimes in making wor- sins worse than others, what we're really saying is, I made the cut and you don't. And God's like, no, none of you made the cut. <laughs> there is no one righteous, not even one, right? So this idea can be very unloving when Paul talks about dealing with sin. And, but, but sin has destructive consequences. And they're not only damaging themselves, but they're damaging the body of Christ as well. William Barclay says this, to shut our eyes to offenses is not always a kind thing to do. It may actually be damaging. To just say, I don't see what this person is doing is very damaging to them. You see, we care that the sinner is jeopardizing his, his place in the kingdom, and we also fear God and his commandments. So look what Paul says. I just want to close with 1 Timothy chapter 1, because I think Paul had a healthy perspective of himself. He's the guy writing this directive, right? He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You're like, you got that right, brother. He sure did. All those sexually immoral sinners and all those sinners out there, Jesus came to save. I'm with you, Paul, of who I am the worst. Oh, man. Oh, man. What if, just crazy talk, what if instead of saying they're the worst sinner, if we lived our lives, I'm the worst sinner? How would that view how we look at people? How would that view how we look at other people's shortcomings and their sins? But, but, listen, don't get stuck there. It's not a, it was me. It's called worm theology, right? What a wretched worm am I? No, 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 no. We are saved. We are not worms. We are the butterflies. We are the unleavened bread, right? We are, we are all that. So don't get stuck there, because Paul goes on to say this. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. Man, isn't that good news? For the very reason that we sin is why we are showed mercy. So that in me, he says, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says what? I am not viewing them as the worst sinners. I am viewing me as the worst sinner. And guess what? As the worst sinner, Jesus in his mercy saved me. And if he can save me, he can save you. That's the goal. Who would believe in him and receive eternal life. It's, it, it's all about the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us 
stands here. I don't mean standing here, but I mean stands before God based on who we are, what we have done, our goodness or our badness. We stand before God based on what Jesus has done for us. That's where our hope is. That's where our mercy is. That's where our grace is. That's where, as we relate to other people, we approach this whole issue prayerfully and with wisdom and with with a heart that's breaking and with, with grace and mercy at the forefront of our thinking. Because God showed us grace and mercy and we are to show grace and mercy to others. What we have received, we are to give. You've been forgiven, we forgive others. You've received grace, you're gracious with others. You've received mercy, you're merciful with others. There is no room for boasting, there's no room for bragging, there is no room for uh, even bragging about how open-minded I am. I stand before Jesus because of the grace that he's given me. And that's where we stand. I mean, this is hard stuff. But it's only really, really hard when I come from a position of superiority and I somehow classify sin and I say, well, yours is worse than mine. And Jesus in his grace says, listen, sin is sin and I'm forgiven and you're here by grace. As we sing and as we just let that kind of digest into our lives, as we look at that place in our lives, It is so good to know that Jesus loves us. It is is so good to know that he took care of our sin. On the cross, he was our Passover lamb, sacrificed for us. Do we need to deal with hard things? Yeah. Because hard things don't help anybody. It hinders us from being good flourishing people in the kingdom of God. But at the same time, it's a great reminder of the grace and the mercy that we have in Jesus. Listen, it is so sweet to be loved by Jesus. I know kids like Sour Patch Kids, but kids are weird. We like the sweet stuff, right? (laughs) We like the good stuff, because even Sour Patch Kids are sweet in the middle. It is so good to be know that we're loved by Jesus. Would you please stand and we're going to pray. Father, these are those hard scriptures. And God, they're hard because of sin. Sin that breaks your heart. The sin that sent Jesus to the cross. The sin that destroys our fellowship with one another, our fellowship with you. Sin that separates and... Nothing good comes from sin. So God, I guess just over these next few moments, maybe we haven't grieved over our our sins. Maybe we're just mad we have consequences or got caught. But we haven't really grieved over the sin. Father, maybe we need restored and maybe we need to have that place to come back to you to be reminded who we are in Christ. Just the hope of the cross. But God, it starts when we remind him how we are loved by you. You loved us so much that you didn't wait for us to get our act together first. You sent Jesus so that we could get our act together. So God, may we all as your people just walk with grace and mercy. Father, to see how sin grieves your heart. Thank you that we are not alone. We have the spirit. We have your word. We have your church to help us.
So just minister to us over these next few moments as we reflect and as we pray, as we commit to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.